Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. This is your host, Dave Meyer, and we have a very fun show for you today. We've heard feedback from our audience that you all have enjoyed some of our forays into different parts of investing and different parts of the economy beyond just real estate investing. Over the last couple of years, we've had some shows about the stock market or about crypto or just about different economies like in Europe or in Asia. And today we're going to be exploring the global economy and where it sits at the end of 2023. To help us in this exploration, we are bringing on Bill Mann from The Motley Fool. He is the director of small cap research there, but he's also just someone who knows a lot about the global economy from his job at The Motley Fool. And he's also very fun to talk to. So if you have been enjoying the kinds of shows that we've been doing where you get to learn more about how to think holistically as an investor, how many of these different disparate parts of the economy, what's going on in different parts of the world will actually truly impact your business. The show is going to be a great one for you. With that, let's bring on Bill Mann from Motley Fool. Bill Mann, welcome to On The Market. Thanks for being here. Hey, Dave, how you doing? I'm doing great, and I'm very excited to be talking to you. For everyone who doesn't know you from your work at The Motley Fool, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your work? 
so I am the director of small cap research here. Uh, I also have our international brief at the company. The Motley Fool is almost entirely equity based. We look for, for companies all around the world. And, you know, we have a very specific style. We're long term buy and hold investors. You know, we, we believe that people are best, uh, best suited doing, doing the work and making decisions for themselves. And so for, from my own standpoint, uh, I view every day for me as kind of being like a treasure hunt. You know, I come in and I look at parts of the market where a lot of people don't really spend a whole lot of time. And are you finding a lot of treasures right now? You know, the the answer is yes, but they've been laying around for a long time. I would describe the current market environment as being one in which uh, in the U.S. we have an S&P 7 and then an S&P 493 and then everything <laughs> else below that. Right. Yes, and yeah. and they're, it's almost like they are unrelated from each other at the moment. So there are a lot of treasures. And. Dave, as you know, the difficulty in the market is that just because you found a treasure, it's not like somebody's going to come by instantly and say, Oh, that's a treasure. I mean, it could look like junk for, you know, to everybody else for a long period of time. So, uh, you have to be a, you have to be a patient treasure hunter and hold on to your, hold on to your treasure as long as you can. Well, I think that, you know, our audience is mostly real estate investors. I think that is a very, uh, apt, analogy also for for our industry too you know and being patient is investing the name of the game it's a it's a great way to uh, proceed so glad we sort of agree there on general philosophy yeah i still kick myself uh in 1993, I looked at a place uh, to buy in an area of Washington, D.C. called Logan Circle, which uh, I don't know. Yeah. A lot of your real estate uh, investors now, when I say the words Logan Circle, will we'll go, <gasps> because it's literally the nicest part of Washington, D.C. now. And at that time, it wasn't, you know, but you needed to be willing to bend your, high, bend your headlights around corners and see what was coming. So, yes, I, you know, I'm glad to be talking to people who understand this principle internally yeah <laughs> yeah people did not know logan circle was a treasure for a few years not 1993 and maybe not for a little while but they got there eventually <laughs> all right so you know we want to you know most of our audience is uh real estate investors and we might delve into sort of equities a little bit here but you are also a student of the global economy and so i was curious to just get your high level view of the global economy right now and where do you think we are in this very unique moment? You know, economies are our systems and maybe that's not a, a really brilliant insight, but, uh, we have just gone through a period of time in which in 2020 we had $19 trillion of sovereign debt that the the debt holders were paying for the right to hold. It, they were negative yielding interest rates, which is a kind of thing that for the entire history of, uh, uh, you know, of, of, fin of the financial markets, people thought of that as being like the Yeti. There's no such thing as negative interest rate, uh, negative yielding interest rates. So, Obviously, one of the reasons why, uh, why that sort of thing would exist is that inflation was the thing that, uh, the central banks were trying to bring about. I mean, inv inflation is something that comes along with economic activity. It comes along with growth. Uh, you know, anything that they could do to keep, you know, us from entering a deflationary environment, they did. So we've gone in a very short period of time, as short as we can ever remember. 
number of going from a low interest rate environment to, I guess, what you would maybe feel like a high interest rate environment, but it's it's somewhere in the middle. And all of these systems really, really struggle when you go through that period of change, right? You get to stasis on the other side and it's fine, but it's hard to guess, right? It, you know, it, it really is where, where are interest rates going to go end up? We don't really know, but globally, what we're seeing right now is that the U S has been raising faster than everybody else and commodity prices have been going up. You can see it in a dollar basis, but you can imagine in a market in which the dollar has increased against your local currency and oil prices have gone up, just how destabilizing that can be. This doesn't maybe count for the company, the countries that produce oil, but for everybody else, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a really big deal. So the, I would describe the global markets right now as being unsettled and looking for a new equilibrium, which they will find. Uh, but it's, you know, it's tough to predict when. And I think interest rates and currencies have a lot to do with that. Yeah. Uncertainty is the only honest way to assess the, the situation right now. It also seems that different countries and different regions are experiencing really different environments. Like in the U.S., obviously, as you said, inflation was the thing. It's, you know, yeah. same thing in Europe, a lot of, you know, South America, same thing. But then you look at an economy like China that's now experiencing deflation. So how do you sort of square this on a global sense where there's sort of different areas of the world that seem so different when just a few years ago, it seemed like the global economy obviously has its own little sectors and caveats, but was sort of moving in the same general direction. Yeah, we've really gone through a period of time in which and 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 it started in the middle of last decade. And it really started with China's Belt and Road Initiative, where you began to see uh, some of the larger co countries using economics as a form of warfare. You've seen it with Russia uh, in regards to both our isolation of Russia, but then also Russia using gas prices as a, you know, like a, a weapon uh, in Europe. So. I think one of the things that, you know, that, that is really happening is that we have gone from being a, a, uh, a system that has favored, uh, globalization to one where you've start to see that fracture a little bit. I think the U.S. economy and the Chinese economy still are very deeply linked, but they're much lo less so than they were even just prior to uh, the pandemic. And so when you see, uh, you know, again, to get back to what I was saying before, a dislocation or a change, then you're going to see each individual part of that, you know, of that system move in its own way. In the case of China, it has essentially grown over the last decade, uh, doing a bunch of capital, uh, a bunch of capital projects, a huge amount of construction. They build roads to, to nowhere. They build airports. These types of things are a form of growth. But the, if they don't end up being used, then they can become deflationary because you don't mm -hmm. need it. And. You don't need to build another one, right? Like there, uh, that is an interesting thing about infrastructure, uh, investments is that once the infrastructure is in place, there's no need to repeat it. So <laughs> yeah, if it works, like, Hey, yeah. let's put in a third airport, right? Like you don't need, you don't need that sort of thing. So what you're seeing in China now is a kind of a, 
an echo of what has probably been fairly poorly uh, conceived um, capital projects that have brought about growth, but not all growth is the same because the consumption hasn't been there. And how concerned are you about this, both from a equity standpoint and just from a global economy standpoint? It seems that at least in my lifetime or adult lifetime, all we hear out of China is outsized growth. And we've never really seen a period where China is a, you know, it's now a period where the China is standing as the second largest economy in the world goes into a recession or goes into a deflationary environment. We've never seen it. So what do you think might come of this? I think one of the most important things for 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 people to realize is that there is a bit of a decoupling from 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 China. But to your point, you know, we talk about, for example, uh, you know, some of the the, the China geopolitical risks, but we don't talk about the things uh, like, for example, that ninety four percent of Apple's production is in China. And 25% of its revenues come from China. What happens to Apple, which is a huge mm-hmm. component of the U.S. stock market, if China continues to stumble? And I, and I think it is absolutely the case that China is stumbling and will continue to do so. So Apple can't simply snap their fingers and move everything to India. I mean, they can't, no. they absolutely positively can't do it. First of all, the Chinese would notice. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, what are you doing? Oh, no, nothing, nothing. We're fine. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it doesn't really work that way. So we are still deeply, deeply linked to China. The, the Goldilocks scenario is actually fairly negative. But it's not terrible. We kind of bumble on along and China continues to be a manufacturing growth engine. There is some decoupling from China and the poor capital investments that have been made over the last decade start to get absorbed. The really bad ones would be if, you know, China's in, uh, Unemployment rate continues to skyrocket, and amongst people below 25, it's believed that it's as high as 45%. But we won't know, right? No, we won't Because know. they stopped no. releasing that data. That, exactly, exactly. Well, and even before they stopped releasing it, those numbers were – I don't know how to say it unpejoratively. They were not necessarily the ones that you would, uh, would, would put uh, your full faith into that are being correct. So, Fair enough. Uh, so ultimately, if China does go into into a, defla- a deflationary spiral, because our countries are so highly linked, I think that there is the potential for uh, for some real pain uh, in the U.S. But even worse in places like uh, like Japan and uh, and mm-hmm. Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that does seem to be the case. And in the real estate industry, I'm just looking at it sort of as, as the financial sector that, you know, we see that China's central government is pushing their banks to sort of support the real estate industry, which might be by taking, you know, issuing riskier loans. And maybe that's just kicking the can down the line. And, you know, of course, like you said, there is some decoupling, but the global financial system is strongly linked. And I, you know, I worry a little bit. Not, I, I'm not like, you know, 
staying up at night thinking about this, <laughs> but you know, I, you, you read about this stuff and you do think, okay, if the, if the Chinese market continues to collapse, it could lead to some tighter credit conditions here in the United States. And that's just one small example. Dave, I think that's exactly right. And th- the thing that I always, the faith that I always put into the system is that it is, that it is somewhat self-healing, but mm-hmm. the, the it is not a new thing that uh, the the central government of china the you know the, the the communist party of china is is using the banking system to further political its its political interests like that's yeah. that's something that has existed forever that's a good point because it's not like if there is this big downturn in china that it's not foreseen you know i think a lot of banks and companies that are operating in China know that this is going on. And, you know, the the property crisis has been going on for a year or two already. You know, like this is not a a quick moving thing. Um, So at least as an economy and individual companies do have some time to adapt to it. Yeah, and this is where you get into the topics of the uh, you know of the phantom cities, the ghost, the ghost developments all around China. A lot of people don't really realize they think of China as having a huge amount of U.S. treasuries. That 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 is you know that that is uh, kind of a a weapon that they have over us. But that's only one part of the balance sheet. You know, they also are have an incredible amount of debt. It may be the most indebted large economy in the world, which seems amazing in a world in which the United States and Japan exist but you know it is <laughs> it it certainly may be the case the way that china's provinces have raised money to operate themselves is through land sales they go to their own mm-hmm. land banks and they sell into these property developers who then develop and the loans come from the banks it's all mandated by the central authority and again this gets back to the something that i was talking about earlier you know when we were talking about infrastructure I guess you would consider housing to be infrastructure also, but even in a totalitarian society, it's hard to sell the same land twice. Like once you have sold it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess you could take it back, but you know, at some point the buyers are going to figure out what the game is. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are selling ever more adversely selected land in a period of time in which the land that has been sold before has not generated a great capital return. And so the rot that's in China right now on every level is substantial. So when you say the the central government is getting involved in mandating ba- the banks to do to do these sorts of things to to support these property developers, they're literally just trying to uh, plug holes in the bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. of you know the whole Chinese economy. Yeah, that that's not what you want. That that doesn't spell <laughs> like, confidence to me. You know, it's, <laughs> what a way to break it down. Yes, that's not what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Just listener, if you were curious, not ideal situation. Uh, well, you know, so I want to switch gears a little bit from real estate to something that I think is a little more bit more. I mean, obviously, real estate. There are equities and REITs and stuff, but mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about uh, chip manufacturing and semiconductors because this is something that is related to China, the whole global economy, and is closely connected to one of the uh, one of the uh, what do you call it the S and P seven before? Yeah, um, that's right. I, I assume Nvidia is one of those seven that you were. It uh, is. Citing. They did it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. They made it to the seven. Well, maybe you could just start by giving us sort of a background on the situation with chip manufacturing and and sort of how it is distributed across the globe and why it's so important. 
Yeah, so uh, obviously the majority of the uh, the advanced microchips in the world are produced in Taiwan, and they're almost all produced by a company called Taiwan Semiconductor. And it's so whenever you talk about the geopolitical situation in Taiwan, and obviously it predates the existence of Taiwan Semiconductor, but Ta- Taiwan S- Semiconductor is absolutely now the prize of Taiwan. The company is such, you know, has such a linchpin on the global economy that they're really, if you even ask experts, there really isn't a good answer where the second option were to be. Like if you snapped your Hmm. fingers and Taiwan Semiconductor disappeared, right, there's nobody to step in. You know, they they are so far ahead of any other uh, comparable producer. And why? Why? They would say that it has to do with the process and the, and, and the type of talent that they have in Taiwan. And I, and I think that this is probably somewhat true that they have, you know, they, they have 3,000 of some of the best developers in the world all in one space. They have been incredibly paranoid about technology transfer, making sure that their trade secrets don't get out. You can, you can be fired in Taiwan Semiconductor for doing something like changing the heading on an email that you've been forwarded, right? Like the level, (laughs) it it seems nuts. I mean, I've done worse things than that. I don't know about about you and I haven't been fired. I've done worse things today for sure. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. We had, we had lunch here and I had seconds. And (laughs) if that, if that is a fireable offense, I wouldn't have made it past my first week. Exactly. So (laughs) it, it is a, it is a potentially catastrophic situation. And so, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. has recognized this. And, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, we, um, we big, we began to, uh, the U.S. government passed a bill called the, the Chips and Science Act, which has mm-hmm. helped f- essentially fund Taiwan Semiconductor's development of, of additional facilities like in Arizona, you know, that's, that's the huge one that's being done, not necessarily at the total choice of Taiwan semi. It's also being done funded. Almost 70% of it is being funded by the U S government. So that, that is something I was curious about because Taiwan semiconductor company has this monopoly essentially on the most advanced types of chips. Why would they expand to the U.S.? Uh, is it because the U.S. government and the Taiwanese government are also sort of intertwined and the U.S. provides a lot of aid to Taiwan and is sort of seen as this military backstop against sort of any sort of Chinese incursion? Is the, is all of that playing into like these little, I mean, not little, but these seemingly innocuous semiconductor plants that are going into the U.S.? Well, you've heard of money, right? I, I, a few times. Yeah. I even have, I don't have a lot of it, but I, I would like to have more of it. You don't have Taiwan semiconductor money, but I mean, no. a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the U.S. government almost, because when the U.S. went in and said, okay, uh, you know, we, we don't want these companies to sell into China anymore. That, you know, Ty- Taiwan Semi cut off sales to Huawei, which was like its second largest customer. Huawei is uh, one of the largest really? Chinese companies. Yeah. yeah, just shut it off. Didn't they didn't yeah. really have any choice, right? So Because the U.S. government insisted, basically? Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. So what's the give back there? Like, okay, look, we understand that this is a painful thing for you, one of the most important companies in the world. So how about we find ways to help you de-risk a little bit? And, oh, hey, by the way, we've got this land in Arizona. If you would like to build there, we will provide all of the infrastructure. We will provide a lot of the funding. Mm -hmm. And and we're just talking about manufacturing. You know, you can okay. retain all of your development. You can retain all of your, you can retain everything that you want in Taiwan. Because by the way, Taiwan Semiconductor, like a lot of uh, chip companies and memory companies, a lot of their manufacturing was in China. It's not in Taiwan mm -hmm. now. So some of the choices that they were having to make, they were forced to make. Uh, at the behest of the U.S. government and other Western powers, there is a little bit of a give back there. And so I think that that has a whole lot to do with it, uh, that and, you know, and the money thing. <laughs> the money, that small money thing. Um, so, you know, when you look at sort of the stock market and obviously uh, – TSM is a uh, what is it TSCM? Sorry, I can never get the TSMC. Right. Uh, yeah, TSMC. TSM. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Thank you. Um, they they are obviously a publicly traded company, but you look at other chip companies that have been going crazy in terms of valuation over this year. Is this largely and due to the same thing? There's still just a chip shortage. Demand is out of control, or is something else going on here? At least partially. So uh, one of the largest chip companies in the world is Micron Technologies, and they just reported earnings, and and they've actually seen a, a real softening in terms of pricing. I mean, in a lot of ways, you have to separate uh, Taiwan Semi from most of the other, you know, most of the other chip companies because they are commodities, right? Ultimately, you know, uh, chip production is is in some ways no different from oil production, right? Like you basically don't get to to name your own price the price is set for you. And the distinction is that Taiwan Semiconductor has the more advanced chips, right? That is exactly. that the difference. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. They have they they have chips that are generally speaking the rule of thumb is that they are 2 years ahead of their next competitor. Ooh, wow. I know oh which God. especially yeah. in technology seems like that's I mean that's insane. literally yeah. forever, right? Like, you know, we were we were still it feels like we were still using digital watches 2 years ago. So like, God, I are, mean that now that really just underscores the importance. Can you imagine having to go back to like an iPhone 11? It would be unbearable. Brutal. It would be the absolutely <laughs> Horrible. The horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get it. That's ultimately it. <laughs> yeah, okay. We just this is what's at stake here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if we were just being released uh excited about the uh the, the, the iPhone eleven. So that's really what it comes down to. I mean it is a you know, it is potentially a massive, massive deal. So one of one company that I am particularly interested in because I live in the Netherlands. I don't know if you know that, Bill. And there is a company here called the ASML, which is mm -hmm. uh, they they're like they make the machines that make the chips, right? Right. Is that correct? Yes. So how do they sort of how do they fit into this whole global competition for chips? I, the, so we have now touched upon maybe the two most important companies in the world that nobody's ever heard of. I mean, yeah. a, a, ASML is another one of those technology companies that the technology that they build is so sensitive that the U.S. government, the Dutch government, the British government, they have no interest in having that 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 technology and that know-how end up in China or in you know in Russia to some degree. But really, uh, China is the country that you know that no 
knows what to do with that type of technology. Uh, ASML is the manufacturer of the equipment that makes the highest end uh, chips. So we always think of things as being the snap test. Like if a company disappeared, you did that Thanos thing and snapped your finger and the company disappeared. Uh, Instantly, things would get much, much worse if Taiwan Semiconductor disappeared. But things would get gradually much, much, much worse if ASML disappeared because ASML is absolutely crucial to manufacturing for Taiwan Semiconductor, amongst many others. So do you see, you know, I I get that, you know, I think ASML is like one of those like backlogs of product orders that, you know, they could stop taking orders now and they'd be busy for the next 30 years, like Boeing, you know, they have these like orders for decades. Do you see more manufacturing coming into the United States? Like this obviously matters to the, for just the economy in general, but as real estate investors, like the places where these plants go tend to be economic hotspots after they go in. So just curious your outlook. Uh, I think ASML, I, it's a really good question. I th- it, it seems to me, and this is somewhat theorizing. So if this turns out to be a thousand percent wrong, we can, you know, we can, we can blame it on just a bad theory. Well, ASML, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like years later, just yeah, out. years later, we'll uh, edit it. <laughs> ASML is one of those companies that is, uh, it's so sensitive that I think it's pretty much comfortable for all of the, you know, all of the actors for it to be in a centralized place. I don't, I don't really foresee too much of ASML's manufacturing capacity moving away from the Netherlands, moving away from its central place. And there are other companies that are like that. Fanuc in Japan, which is a robot maker, is one where mm-hmm. they make basically everything in a single facility. And it is for those industrial espionage and and technology transfer uh, limitation reasons that they do it. So, so I'm not sure that ASML is going to be of a great benefit for real estate investors anywhere other than in the Netherlands now. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess my question is more like because ASML is so backlogged, like is there is there realistic that producers who need the ASML machines are going to be able to build new plants in the U.S., um, whether it's Taiwan Semiconductor or any other chip maker? I mean, that is, uh, so I never really thought about it that way. If I, you know, I, well, maybe just be a stupid question. <laughs> no, it's not a stupid question. It's actually a fantastic one, which is, uh, uh, I ultimately, when you think about a company like ASML, what you're talking about is, is, is not so much a, a backlog. It's a backlog at the very, very top end. So it doesn't really slow down America. Uh, a Taiwan semiconductor for ASML to have a backlog. What it does okay. is, is it limits their capacity to bring out the next and the next technologies. So yes, that backlog is not ideal. It's possible that they will solve it through, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and it, an addition of ASML capacity. Most likely the way that that plays out is that it, it simply changes the curve on, uh, new technology adoption. Okay. Great. Well, we, we started in China. We went to microchips. We talked a little bit about my home here in the Netherlands. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on Europe in general, because we have, 
Germany, which is the biggest driver of economic growth traditionally in, mm-hmm. in the EU, uh, technically in a, in a recession right now. And we're seeing the continent, uh, you know, some co- economies doing well, some doing poorly. And as obviously a big integrated part of the global economy, where do you give us an assessment of the Europe, the Eurozone? So I would describe the U.S. dollar right now as being a bit of a wrecking ball. You know, so when we were talking earlier about oil prices and then U.S. dollar inflation, because 60 percent of the world's commodities are priced in dollars, a strong U.S. dollar is a problem very specifically for, for, for Europe. Europe has a number of, of, of economies and maybe Netherlands is at the top of the list, but Germany as well that are both export oriented and they are very good capital reinvestment countries. Uh, the one that I would put at maybe the top of the list though is Sweden. You know, as a, as, as a country that has done an incredibly good job at looking outside of the, you know, of, of, of the country, uh, in terms of reinvesting, uh, their profits. Uh, so I think the Swedish economy is probably the one to me that is most interesting Hmm. as an investor. Oh, cool. Interesting. Wouldn't have thought of that. All right. Well, Bill, this has been very fascinating, very helpful conversation and getting a better understanding of the global economy. If you had, you know, crystal ball time here, if you had to to take a guess on how the global economy evolves over the next year, what what's your view? So I think it really... Um is going to be based on a couple of things that are, that, that are, that are hard to predict. The first of which is, uh, India is really driving hard to become a manufacturing center in a very high tech way. India, mm-hmm. I would describe as the economy of the future and it maybe always will be. Uh, but hmm. it, I mean, you could see now they're trying to open up a, you know, they're trying to open up, up a very high tech manufacturing, uh, area in Gujarat. At any point, particularly when you see a, a a break in the past, you know the things that have been the drivers of the past, and I'm thinking specifically here of uh, of AI, of artificial intelligence. I think you have a real opportunity for uh, for advancements in parts of the economy that we haven't really expected. I expect that probably we have come close to the end of the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve raising interest rates. So I think you're going to see, uh, you know, a little bit of a return to, to stability that will give companies a, you know, a little bit of a longer, uh, you know, their, their binoculars will look out a little bit farther so they can mm-hmm. make some additional plans. You're going to see some real deployment. Uh, redeployment, but I see the, I see the, the global economy moving back to, you know, a reasonable rate of an inflation and, uh, you know, GDP, GDP growth across the globe of, of, you know, three and a half to four percent. Well, Bill, let's hope you're right. I like your vision of the future. That sounds like a vision of the future we could we could all get behind. I'd vote for me. <laughs> yeah, if you could do it, if you could, if you could do it, I'd vote for you too. Well, Bill, where can, you know, you obviously, you are uh, doing a lot of research, you make a lot of content. Where can people follow you if they want to learn more? So I am, uh, I run a few services at The Motley Fool. I one called, I one, uh, called, uh, Global Partners, which is an international equities, uh, service. And I run another called Value Hunters, which is kind of scouring the globe and looking for companies that have been, uh, then been left behind. Treasures. So, 
Treasures, exactly. You're finding the treasures. Should have just called it Treasures. Yes. <laughs> so those are the best places to find me. Uh, and I'm on Motley Fool Money uh, you know, a couple days a week. That is our free uh, podcast and radio show. Awesome. Well, Bill, man, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate the invitation. That was a lot of fun. Big thanks to Bill for joining us. Kaylin, our producer, just slacked me and is totally right. Bill has an excellent voice for radio. I, I don't know what mine sounds like, but it's definitely not as cool as Bill's. But he really understands the economy. That was a lot of fun uh, to listen to and talk to. And I found it super easy to digest and understand. Hopefully you did too. And if you have some feedback for us, we would love to hear it. We're always trying to expand the show into new topics and new areas that our audience are curious about. This is a perfect example where we're talking about equities. We're talking a little bit about business. We're talking about the global economy. And if this kind of show is interesting to you, we would love to hear about it. Or if you'd prefer we stick to something else or you have an idea about a different kind of show that we could do, we would love to hear from you as well. You can do that by finding me on Instagram where I'm at the Data Deli, or you can also find me on Bigger Pockets anytime. Thank you all so much for watching. We'll see you for the next episode. On the Market was created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kalen Bennett. The show is produced by Kalen Bennett with editing by Exodus Media. Copywriting is by Calico Content, and we want to extend a big thank you to everyone at Bigger Pockets for making this show possible. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but at the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market, it's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.